You're listening to a Hindustan Times podcast brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, this is Manjula Narayan, National Books Editor Hindustan Times and this is the Books and Authors podcast. It's a weekly podcast where I speak to authors who've got a new book out. Hi, so today we have with us Manishankar Iyer who's written the first memoirs of a maverick. the first 50 years this is the first volume that's 1941 to 1991 hello thank you for coming on the show thank you thank you greatly so, honored yeah. so the next uh, next so there's going to be two other volumes if i'm not mistaken or is just one yes, other yes there'll be two other volumes one relating to rajiv gandhi's political life yes. it's not really autobiography it's more biography but of course i was involved in bits of it so it's a kind of bio autobiography but it's more biography and the third volume is the sequel to the first and it's tentatively been titled a half life in politics because rutherford on discovering radioactivity he found that it has a half life by which he meant that it grows and glows for half its life and then it starts deteriorating until it gets extinguished altogether and okay. that is exactly how my political life has been so i'm intending to call it a half life in politics whether the publisher will accept that title or not i can't say at the moment <laughs> okay talking about this half life you begin you begin this uh, book with quite a statement quite a bang <laughs> which i found funny right away but i'm not sure everybody will find it funny this bit the origins of these memoirs lie in a suggestion made by chiki sarkar founder and publisher of jagannath uh, in november 2015 at a reception banquet on the lawns of my residence uh, when she took me by surprise by saying i really should write up the story of my life sonia gandhi who is the chief guest at the banquet backed the idea largely i think because she had no further plans for me in politics You know what I, you know what I thought in 2015 hmm. has proved absolutely right over the next eight years, and although I have had a recent meeting with her where I pleaded that uh, something should be done about bringing me back into the mainstream, I've been absolutely on the margins for at least the last seven years since I retired from the Rajya Sabha in March of uh, 2016. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like, is this like a prod? <laughs> you just decided it doesn't matter. You can say anything now. No, I've I've spoken to her personally, <laughs> so I don't see that the book is a prod. No, not at all. <laughs> okay, okay. So, ah, uh, you know, while I was reading it, I was thinking it's so detailed. You know, as scenes from your childhood and from, uh, you know, your career in the IFS. So were you keeping notes? Did you, because you mentioned a diary at one point, which went missing and you've not, you know, uh, that you was, know. that was only on the ship going to England. Mm. And uh, there I recorded every day. But mm. as I said, that diary got lost and uh, I have never before or since kept a diary. So it's all really out of my head. but okay. i was greatly assisted by uh, the school authorities both in wellam and in doon school pulling mm-hmm. out of their archives articles i'd written or essays i'd done okay. and uh, 
at St. Stephen's, they have an alumni association. And the secretary of that alumni association was very helpful in pulling things out from there. Mm. Uh, Cambridge, uh, I didn't have recourse to any written documentation, but there were a lot of incidents that had remained in my mind. And since that was the defining moment, the inflection point, if you like, of my life, I do have very warm memories of uh, Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And then once I came into the Foreign Service, uh, there were a number of documents, but principally it's in the third volume uh, that you will discover how much archival material there is. And that's largely because uh, a, a gentleman called N. Venkatraman joined me in 1991 or two, and for the last 30 years, He's been squirreling away every piece of paper relating to me, not at my initiative, but at his. <laughs> and while I was writing this book, the first manuscript of which ran to 450,000 pages, uh, sorry, words, it was you? he who kept feeding me with information and I was left with no alternative but to use it. And that resulted in my losing complete control over the length of the book. And because my publisher said to me, I didn't commission you to write War and Peace, we <laughs> ended up with that manuscript being uh, shortened by about 50,000 words and divided into three volumes. Okay. Okay. So, but you wrote this basically during the pandemic? I mean, did you put it down? Yeah. it was. I don't think it could have been done if it hadn't been for the lockdown. And uh, so I started... I started really seriously writing it in 2020, and it took me about a year, uh, the better part of two years, to complete the document. And in 2021, December, I handed it in, fully expecting that within a couple of months it was going to be released. But then the publishers got onto it. I said to them, I sent my sheep to you for shearing and you slaughtered it. So <laughs> it has taken it has taken more, well, the better part of two years to meet their editing requirements. And I don't know whether the book is better now or not, but I rather suspect it is because they have cut out a lot of flab. And what I've done is I've taken the flab and put that onto a website. So in the book, you'll see the QR codes, yes. which if you if you take on, if you're interested, you could find what find the flab that the editors wish to cut out. But I must admire them for the punctiliousness with which they dealt with the manuscript. I'm quite amazed that they had the patience and the persistence to look through the manuscript literally with a microscope. Mm. And in fact, I thought that this QR code idea for, for footnotes is a nice hybrid uh, thing, you know, for like massive books. I'm sure more people will start doing this because it, it makes a I lot got of the sense. Idea. I got the idea from a little book by P. Sainath called okay. The Last Heroes. And yes. when I saw that, I thought it was a brilliant idea. And so we created this website. Oh, oh, it's from that, from the Peace Ayanath book. Okay, okay. They yeah, also I'm, done glad, I'm glad the publishers allowed me to do it. Although what it is, is the detritus of what has been left <laughs> after their editing of the manuscript. 
Hmm. Yeah, the um, I mean, you've mentioned you know the whole uh, speeches and stuff that you gave at the U at the union in Cambridge. That's up on the website, right? Yes. And photographs as well. The photographs were again the result of Venkatraman's diligence. He has been archiving family photographs for such a long time that when it came to choosing the photographs, there was simply no alternative to reading through hundreds of photographs to pick up what should be, what I hope would be of interest, not because it recorded my life, but because it showed different facets of my life or was photographically significant. And uh, Yashika at uh, the publishers did, I think, a very good job of attempting to uh, lay out the photographs in such a manner and give them captions that would be appealing, one hopes, to the reader. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, you know, when I was reading about your childhood, it seemed like at first it was great and then it was difficult. I mean, it must have been difficult, you know. Well, at different thing. points, it was great in different ways. Mm-hmm. My initial childhood till the age of 12 was great in the sense that there were absolutely no financial problems. Mm-hmm. But it was very difficult in that I, my parents had an extremely troubled marriage and that used to affect us as children. Mm-hmm. Also, it wasn't very happy making to be sent at the age of seven uh, to a boarding school. But that at least was a better fate than befell my brothers. Swaminathan went to the same school at the age of six and poor little Mukunda was not even five when he was put in there. But when I was 12 and my father was killed in, a fr- in an air crash, then suddenly all the bad part, all the good parts of our living changed. Mm. And uh, we went into a kind of genteel poverty. Mm. And my mother was very particular that we should continue at this extremely expensive school at which she had put in three different boys. Yes. So the, the, the weight of that on the family budget was so great that everything else, including buying clothes, you know, as a teenager, you, you want to get good clothes. And mm-hmm. I used to feel very embarrassed about the fact that I had no home clothes. We used to wear school clothes even in the holidays and in the midterm break. But then uh, my my mother's sister married a wonderful man called mm. uh, Minhajali Mirza. Yes. And Uncle Mirza bought me a, a T-shirt, mm. uh, no, a bush shirt that was multicolored yes. and was a takeoff on what Devanand had worn in a film called CID, which was a great hit in the mid-50s. And uh, it was such an important moment for me that even today, I can tell you the exact date I bought it. It was the 16th of June, 1957. Wow. So one learned learned to live uh, a frugal life. And at the end of it, uh, my mother paid for me to go to Cambridge because her inflexible law in life was that debts are a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And my brother has become a billionaire by simply adhering to the principle that you can't accumulate unless you speculate. So Amma, and and he takes Amma's example and says she died with about 300 rupees in her account number 379. 
at the State Bank of India in Munikireti near Rishikesh. So uh, she actually ensured that whatever wealth there was, was spent on our education uh, and that for the rest, we were on our own. And thank God there was no property because this kept my family together. Had there been one big house, then till today, for the last 60 years at least, we would have been quarreling among ourselves. So I'm very glad that uh, we, we ended, or my mother ended, virtually penniless. Mm. Yeah, you make a reference to that Malcha Marg uh, plot that, that your father <laughs> gave away. <laughs> I found that quite funny. But yeah, it's true. If if that Malcha Marg plot had stayed, I don't think you would have managed. We wouldn't have had a happy family life in my generation. <laughs> so then I'm glad my father gave away that plot, saying that he didn't want to live among the jackals. Of course, there's still jackals living there, but they're of the human variety. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, you make, um, there are, you know, the thing about you is that you make these comments which other people take offense to, but which are very funny. And you managed to do that in the book as well. But hasn't this habit of yours cost you a lot? I mean, once in a while, you know. I think it's exactly <laughs> for that reason that I had a half-life, not only in politics, but also in diplomacy. Now, I left the Foreign Service when I still had, I think, 12 years to go, uh, at a time when I would have become an ambassador and then a secretary, etc. Yes. But I realized when I was Joint Secretary UN, that my, and when I was posted in Pakistan, that I had a mind that was not conventional. And mm -hmm. I therefore realized that if I continued in the service, I would make a disastrous, as disastrous a senior diplomat <laughs> as I think I was regarded as a fairly outstanding junior diplomat. Because at the junior level, you use your imagination on all kinds of practical things, like organizing the India-Luxembourg Friendship Society. But at higher levels, you deal with the uh, the etheria of foreign policy. And there I found myself so much in disagreement with the government of India's policies, even though it was not a radical government like or a communal government like the one we have now. Mm -hmm. And yet I was not in agreement with what they wanted to do with Pakistan, with what they wanted to do with China, with their uh, very great reluctance over nuclear disarmament. And I said, well, no, I really should chuck this up because it's precisely my character or my inability to control my thinking that would make me a disastrous senior member of the Foreign Service. So I think I got out at the right time. But again, that became an affliction when I was in politics. And today, the reason why I've been completely marginalized for the best part of really about 15 or 16 years, is that the leadership of my party regards me as a loose cannon. My commitment to secular fundamentalism mm. and the appeasement of Hindus, Hindutva, mm. is uh, of such a basic character that pragmatic people in the Congress party think that you know I'm being too extreme. Indeed, when I was on my Ram Rahim Yatra, that was just before the Babri Masjid fell and mm. aimed at 
preserving it. I was called from, from the Yatra, from Bhubaneshwar, mm. by Prime Minister Narasimha Rao, who opened his conversation with me, mm. saying, I have no objection to your Yatra. Mm. What I object to is your definition of secularism. He, he, he said that, and uh, I was astonished. I said, sir, what's wrong with my definition of secularism? And he said, money, you don't understand that we are a Hindu country. I was amazed. I said, but that's exactly what the BJP says. So if at the, at the penultimate level of my party, people like Narasimha Rao were regarding us as a Hindu country, I'm not surprised that the party regards me as being out of line and mm. calling me a loose cannon. Mm-hmm. But Narasimha Rao is long gone. You know, now it's different. Yeah, he's long, he's long gone. But I think the party has been thinking very deeply mm. about uh, why it has been in the wilderness since 19 to 2014. Mm. And uh, I think they've come to the conclusion that uh, they have in some sense alienated Hindu sentiment. And uh, I believe that a country is measured by its civilizational values mm. and that our civilizational values are more important than winning an election. And that if we win an election by compromising on our civilizational values, then in a way, we are not in keeping with the Nehruvian heritage. After all, when Jawaharlal Nehru became Prime Minister, we had just been through the horrendous carnage of partition. And in the middle of that carnage, Gandhiji and he insisted that we must show our civility by looking after our minorities. And this is called by this lot appeasement. You appease an enemy. You don't appease a friend. Is the Muslim minority of India an enemy of the majority? And if they're not an enemy, then what is the use of the word tushtikaran, which mm-hmm. they translate as appeasement mean? So mm-hmm. not, not only is it wrong, a wrong language, it's also very wrong thinking. And yes. I think we should pit ourselves against this thinking to win the larger battle of retrieving India's basic nationhood. Mm-hmm. And this which is, is a which is a, a civilizational heritage of our country. Hmm. And at, some, at one so, point, you also mentioned how Rajiv Gandhi also thought like this, right? And that's perhaps... Oh, he was, he and I, on the question of secularism, were on exactly the same wavelength for the best part of four years, hmm. uh, five, nearly five years. Then he brought in political elements into the PMO. And they, out of what they regarded as pragmatic reasons, started shifting him, pushing Mm. him in another direction. The result was that with the masjid standing, the Hindus didn't vote for us. And with the Shiladiyas, the Muslims didn't vote for us. So that strategy backfired in 1989. And that is why, having been through that searing experience myself, I I advocate a principled stand which is on points of thought, on points of principle opposed to this idea of Hindutva. Hmm. And the, the, the Rajiv Gandhi chapter is very interesting because, you know, you work closely with him. And I found this also, you know, and this perhaps really was his failing that he didn't, which you point out, which uh, he seems to have believed 
Um, he seems to have believed that it was enough to have the issues debated and sorted out in parliamentary debate. In doing so, he seemed not to have reckoned with parliament proceedings receiving scant attention after the emergency, whereas in Nehru's time, newspapers assigned their best uh, correspondence to the parliament beat. And then you go on to say that, you know, it's because of his lack of this sort of engagement. And yes. you, know, so you see, he, uh, Mr. Sharada Prashad, hmm. who was... Indira Gandhi's information advisor yes. for 18 years, of mm. all her years as prime minister, and then continued for a while with Rajiv Gandhi. Dekhe, uh, I continued with her for, uh, continued with Rajiv for a few years. His methodology of dealing with controversial issues involving the prime minister was to get statements put out by the Press Information Bureau. Mm. Mm. And that continued into the Rajiv era. But unfortunately, what uh, happened was that because Rajiv did not explain, I'm not, please note, I'm not saying defend, he did not explain himself and his spokesman, who initially was uh, Sharda Prashad and subsequently G. Parthasarathy, they kept thinking that bulletins issued by the PIB would be adequate. But of course, journalism in India had changed. Whereas the Press Information Bureau was a highly regarded institution of our entire media setup when I was a young man. Now, I think you people look with contempt upon PIB releases and want to and read them only to find out what is it that they're hiding. And that is what happened in the Rajiv era without the Prime Minister's office realizing that there had been a fundamental shift within the media, particularly with the private media. And I commend Rajiv for that, having been brought into the visual media. Mm. It was the era of when NDTV started and the beginning of the current period when mm. the social media and the visual media matter much more in opinion making yes. than what appears in print or what is spoken in parliament. Yes. I think we missed this fundamental change in the instruments of determining a public opinion. And that is what resulted in Rajiv Gandhi becoming India's most misunderstood prime minister. Incidentally, that is the title of my second volume. It's called The Rajiv I Knew and mm -hmm. Why He Was India's Most Misunderstood Prime Minister. And this, what you have just read out from the first volume, is a kind of introduction to the second volume. Okay. Okay. In fact, you know, the, and, uh, uh, the author I spoke to last week, Nirja Chaudhary, who just got this book out, How Prime Ministers Decide. Her chapter um, on Rajiv Gandhi is uh, called uh, The Secular uh, Prime Minister Who Made Way for, and, you know, who, I think. Who, you know, Nir, Nirja, yes. Nirja has been a very close family friend of mine okay. since she was 10 years old. Oh. And my sister's best friend at St. Thomas's School in Dehradun. Okay. So I think it would be an act of less majesty for me to comment on her book. I hope <laughs> she will wait till this volume comes out next week. And then uh, my second volume comes out, I don't quite know when, in order to see whether she would want to revise her opinion 
of Rajiv. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't want to anger myself. So I actually have not, except the extracts I've read in the newspapers, actually read her chapter. I said, let me, on Rajiv, I said, let me postpone that till after my book is released. Otherwise, I'll spend all these interviews refuting Nirja, who is who is such a close family friend of mine. I don't want to get involved in a tangle with her. Though, you know, um, mostly, I mean, the, I'm just talking about the title. Okay, maybe, yeah, you might get into a tangle with her on the, yeah, on the particulars. But the secular prime minister who undermined secularism is what, you know, the chapter is called. And more or less, uh, that's what emerges generally. Well, as I, as I told you, I, I, I don't want to comment on her book. Okay, okay. And you can, I hope you'll schedule another interview after my second volume comes. At that time, I'll explain to you why I don't think that is an accurate description of uh, of Rajiv. But just now, I I don't feel like, uh, you know, opposing the magnum opus of a child I knew. I taught her the Pythagoras theorem. How can I? I've been a mentor to her. So how can I tangle with her here? Okay, okay, okay. Okay, so going to the, you know, your years in Pakistan, I found that a very interesting section, you know. I mean, a lot of people when they write nowadays, when they write about, you know, any mention of Pakistan is uh, is very negative, you know. But your chapter kind of gives another perspective of the place, of the people. You know, it's almost like, uh, I mean, one has lost that sort of feeling for the neighbor, you know. So Well, you know, people often ask me, which was your favorite posting abroad? And look generally shocked when I say that I'll never forget my posting in Karachi. Mm-hmm. And when my wife chimes in, that that really was the best, considering that we'd also been in Brussels, um, people are surprised. And I myself did not go to Pakistan expecting it to be a smooth posting. I said to myself that Indira Gandhi's major political achievement was not the liberation of Bangladesh, but the Shimla Agreement. Mm. She held out an olive branch to Pakistan. Mm. And so I said that we have accepted the reality of partition. We may regret it, Mm. but we have accepted that reality. And therefore, what is the point of a foreign policy where you know whatever you want to do with Paraguay is clear to you, but <laughs> as far as our neighbor Pakistan is concerned, you're completely confused. And mm-hmm. in my book, I recount how on my very first afternoon in Karachi, I got a call from the office of the Deputy Commissioner Sakkar, mm-hmm. who uh, it was the call was not from the Deputy Commissioner, but from a liaison officer who yes. had been attached to a Hindu sant who mm. at uh, L.K. Advani's instance had been allowed to return to Sakkar to provide spiritual guidance to the fairly large number of Hindus who continue to reside in Upper Sin. And this chap said, I have a terrible problem on my hands, sir. So mm. I said, what's your problem? He said, the Muslim murids of your mm. Hindu sant want to meet him. Mm. So I said, yes. And he said, do I have your permission, sir? So the first thing I did in Pakistan was to permit Muslim murids to meet a Hindu sant. 
naturally that completely altered the perspective within which I was going to face the next three years. And at the end of that, I recount that in my book, on my last morning in Karachi, just before I sailed to Bombay, I called in my only clerk who had spent exactly the same number of days in Karachi as I had. And I asked him whether he'd faced any trouble. He said, mm -hmm. no. Mm -hmm. I said, well, you look like an India, like a Pakistani. So maybe they didn't recognize you. But I said, what about your wife? Don't mm -hmm. they wear bindis and saris? Mm -hmm. And he confirmed that. So I said, have they ever been abused? He said, no, not at all. So I said, is it true that in Sadar, that is the commercial marketplace, yeah. you uh, are given discounts? And while he was hesitant, he said, yes, he confessed to it. So I said that you have never been troubled. Your wives have, and your women have never been troubled. You're even given discounts in, in the marketplace. And so should we make friends with them? And he looked astonished. And he said to me, how can we, sir? They're all Muslims. Now, that is the mindset that we have to overcome. Because we've got almost as many Muslims in India as they have in Pakistan. Yeah. And it is that is why I say it's a measure of our civility, how we treat our minority. And in Pakistan, I discovered that notwithstanding the fact that these people had uprooted themselves from India to settle into a new country, their affinity to India was much greater than their affinity to fellow Muslim countries. At the moment, just look at it. If Islam is the basis of nationality, why is there a border between Afghanistan and Pakistan? And why is it that Pakistan's major problem today is not India, it's Afghanistan under the Taliban who are pushing their radicals into the northwest frontier province, which is today called Khyber Pakhtunpa. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, what we ought to base ourselves on is the goodwill of the Pakistani people, which is so overwhelming that I've never met an Indian who's been to Pakistan for a short time or a long time, who doesn't come back full of praise for the welcome extended by the people of Pakistan. Now, I recognize as a diplomat, as a professional diplomat, that the Pakistan state does not reflect much of the time this general view of the Pakistan populace. So I therefore ask the question, why when we have a quarrel with the Pakistan establishment, do we attack the people of Pakistan by denying them visas, by denying them access to our country, to our the remaining Urdu literature here, their relatives, their kith and kin in India, trade with India, investment from India, investment in India from Pakistan. Everything that would make for normal relations is and could be built on the goodwill of the Pakistan people is denied by my foreign office because they're into games of geopolitics. Well, I'm in, not in the game of geopolitics. I'm in the game of human interaction. And I found the people of Pakistan, where else would a mayor of Karachi say to me after I'd lost my second election that, so if this is the attitude 
of ordinary man. This man, mind you, was a Jamaat-e-Islami man. He was a J.I. mayor of Karachi. And his first request to me was, can I go to Bombay? I said, of course. He said, you know why I want to go? He was a butcher by profession. He said, I'm told that the abattoir in Bombay is a very scientific modern one. Would he have said this to uh, the Consul General of America to go to Chicago? No. no. For them, India is the example. And for us, Pakistan should be the example. But instead of which, we cut off interpersonal relations in the name of interstate rivalries. And I don't think that is good diplomacy. Mm-hmm. But also, this is also, don't you think that it's an idea that perhaps one could have held in an earlier era? And now with, you know, I mean, relationships being vitiated, people think like this less and less, you know? They, why do they think of this less and less? Mm-hmm. If you read the history of Jawaharlal Nehru's relations with Liaquat Ali Khan or Ghulam Mohammed, There was a period up till Pakistan became a member of uh, various American alliances where earnest efforts were made by us in the worst of times to have a decent, normal relationship with Pakistan. Now that we are overwhelmingly superior to Pakistan on every metric, including the size of our chests, we have, we have, we are we are ready to do surgical strikes on Pakistan, but we don't have the guts to sit at a table across and talk to them. What kind of foreign policy is this? And why is this so? It is because by othering our Muslims, it is not possible to make it compatible with becoming friendly with those who were Indian Muslims and are now Pakistani Muslims. That is why Mr. Modi finds it easy to hug uh, some sheikh in Abu Dhabi, but doesn't find it easy to hug a Pakistani. That is the fundamental flaw. And I think a lot of foreign service officers actually are anti-Muslim. They're certainly anti-Pakistani. And I am I am a maverick. That's because they are obsessed with geopolitics mm. and do not think that human connections are at the core of diplomacy. Mm-hmm. I have a different and perhaps maverick view that mm-hmm. particularly with our neighbors, particularly with them, obviously this doesn't apply to Africa or Arabia or Europe or America. Mm-hmm. There is such a strong civilizational connection between us that we should be basing our foreign policy in the immediate vicinity of India to on human relations rather than geopolitics. Remembering always that compared to all our neighbors in South Asia, we are a huge country. Yes. What on earth? I mean, we, we may not be uh, very great in comparison to China or the United States, but in our own region, we are so large that we are regarded as hegemonistic. We aren't, in fact, hegemonistic, but we are not basing our foreign policy in this area on human relations. And if we did, I think we would get much better results than our trying to be metonics in uh, South Asia. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, going to, you know, this way, the, the bit where, you know, since you're married to a person who is a Sikh, 1984 must have been really quite terrible. Well, it, 
I've dealt with it at great length in my yes. book. Yes. And and yes, uh, not only because Sunit is a Sikh, but because I'm an Indian. Yes. I was absolutely horrified that the government was proving itself to be as impotent and incompetent as it was in those first two days of November 1984, when nearly 3,000 people, Indians, not Sikhs, Indians, lost their lives. And uh, it was it was not a riot, it was a pogrom. Yes. And the government of India was absolutely incompetent. But fortunately, on the night of the second, third, Rajiv Gandhi took his own car, went to the worst affected areas and got the government to call in the army. And the rioting started declining from the 3rd of November. But the first two days were terrible. And we have not made adequate recompense for that. And I've given listed, I think, six reasons why I think Rajiv, despite my admiration for him, despite my believing him to be totally secular, um, certainly as secular as I am, uh, he, he could have done more. Mm-hmm. And I've explained what he could have done more. Mm-hmm. There was there was also this personal angle that, uh, particularly on the night of the first, I didn't know who was going to get us first: Hindu rioters or Sikh rioters. Mm-hmm. Of course, there were no Sikh rioters, so we were not, in fact, in danger. It was just an apprehension. Mm-hmm. Okay, but you know, there are a lot of people who said that Arun Nehru. I mean, that's the thing that he he kind of. Other books have said that he gave a call to Narasimha Rao and said that PMO is taking over. Uh, but you've laid the blame at uh, the man who was a home minister at that point. So, you know, what was, what do you I think? Don't think I'm, I don't think it's right to say I'm leaving the blame at his door. Mm-hmm. There was a failure of governance. And yes. in that, the failure was led by Narasimha Rao and uh, SL Khurana who was the lieutenant governor of Delhi. And had these two people lived up to their high offices, then I think the rioting could have been controlled or the pogrom could have been controlled uh, and not allowed to get completely out of hand. Yet, I think that was the first manifestation of what becomes apparent towards the end of the first volume and certainly is there in the sequent this the sequential volume that Narasimha Rao was basically very very inclined to cater to appease the Hindu character or the Hindu elements of our nationality, failing to recognize that there is a basic difference between Hinduism and Hindutva. Hinduism is a great religion, but Hindutva is essentially based on the Semitization, Semiticization of the Indian heritage and its basic motivation is anti-Muslim. So it is based on the othering of Muslims. It is not really based on favoring the Hindus. It is favoring the Hindus in order to other, uh, other make other the Muslims. Mm-hmm. You know, from what I'm reading, um, all the books that have been coming out, Arun Nehru deserves a book to himself. I mean, but uh, I don't know who's going to write it. Yeah, I'll tell you, I think in Christianity, they say that opposed to the Bible is uh, a Satan's book. Uh, (laughs) That's why they say even the devil can quote the scriptures. So I think we need an appropriate devil 
to produce a biography of Arun Nehru, <laughs> especially his role between 1984 and 1990. Mm -hmm. He then fades out completely, fades out yes. completely. Yes. And although it's not in my book uh, at any place, the fact is that in 1996, he kept writing in the Hindu that I was the only Tamil congressman who might win the election. I actually mm -hmm. lost, and by almost the same margin as everybody else. So I went to see Arun. He mm -hmm. gave me lunch. And I asked him, you know, on what basis did you say this? He said, well, I'm not a pollster. But I, and he pointed to his telephone. He says, that is my instrument of analysis. And I kept calling Mupanar. And Mupanar said the only seat he was not sure of getting was mine. So, in fact, my defeat was a kind of flattery of me. <laughs> okay. Okay, and you know, at various points in your book, you, you're kind of like, um, there's a little bit of, you know, uh, self-assessment of yourself uh, you know self-assessment is of yourself as somebody who's you know uh, a coconut you call yourself a coconut you know white on the inside so talk about that and why did you feel like that i mean you know because you see, i belong i i yes. belong to an era which no contemporary very few contemporary indians who are below the age of 80 can recall or experience. When we became independent, there were a very large number of uh, English people and other white people who were still around. Mm. And uh, they were my neighbors. There was one Mrs. Kelly, an Irish woman, who was my immediate neighbor in Dehradun. Mm. And in my school, we had two outstanding masters who have influenced generations of Doon school boys. Mr. Martin, the headmaster, and a gentleman called Holdsworth, who's normally referred to as Holdy. And earlier in Wellam School, there was this amazing woman, Hercilia Oliphant, who decided that Indian independence was coming. And therefore, there should be Indian boys to run India, not the India of the British, but the coming independent India. And so she started a school called Wellam Boys. But the full name was not Wellam Boys. It was called Wellam School, Wellam Preparatory School for Indian Boys. There were only Indians admitted to the school. And these people made a profound remark on me. But as they were English, they were not Indian. The kind of history they taught us, the kind of Shakespeare they taught us. I gave an example of uh, a famous line from Hitler, from Hamlet, where <laughs> Hamlet has been killed. Yes. And uh, Laertes says, uh, carry him to his untimely beer. Yeah. And Holdy in class looks up and he says, what is an untimely beer? Is it a beer before lunch? <laughs> so, so we, and then he read out the Mikado to us, mm. Gilbert and Sullivan. So ultimate, and then history, we were taught a lot of British history and some continental history. We were taught Indian history, but uh, by teachers who made a less, a less of an impression on us than mm. these uh, versatile Englishmen. It was Holdy who asked uh, of another Englishman who was our librarian. He said, what is your definition of pessimist? 
and we looked sort of bewildered. And he said, Mr. Tottle is a pessimist because he wears both a belt as well as braces. <laughs> so, so when this was our upbringing, and I arrived at Cambridge, and I thought I was in a foreign land, and discovered within weeks that I never felt more at home. It really was a revelation to me that I had actually been brought up to be an Englishman, mm. but they couldn't change the color of my skin, which is why I said I was a coconut Indian. And that determined me to discover more about my heritage. And my heritage for me began with uh, two books, Basham's Wonder That Was India mm. and Nehru's Discovery of India. Okay, so that's, that's, that's the, the background to that. Also, as also, I think I should mention, as I've done in my book, that we went on the Bharat Darshan as foreign service probationers. Mm -hmm. And at Elora, I was just overwhelmed and discovered that we were building this temple at Elora by unknown sculptors yes. at a time when the Englishman was wandering around in bearskins. Yes. So That's... I think that was that was when. I recovered my self-confidence as an Indian and broke the coconut. Okay, so, you know, like looking back, what were the things that you could have done differently, you know? That I could have done differently? Yeah, in your political career. Would you have chosen not to say the things that you do, maybe? No, I think I wouldn't be able to live with myself. <laughs> and I have I've often been aware of the consequences of speaking out. And don't forget that I spoke out as a minister against the Commonwealth Games, against economic reforms without social justice, mm. and against the nuclear deal with, with the US. Mm. So all that, of course, made me an unreliable member of the cabinet. But I didn't foresee at that stage that I was going to be one-sided or marginalized in the uh, in the post ministerial period mm -hmm. and that was because of distortions of what i had said introduced by our honorable uh, prime minister narendra modi who twice over twisted my words and my party instead of asking me whether i'd ever called him a chaiwala i hadn't it was he who called himself a chaiwala or whether i had said that <laughs> he was a nichadmi i hadn't in a particular contest, I said, he's a niche kissam ka admi. I never talked about his jat, and yet he twisted that. Then I had a Pakistani friend who'd been the foreign minister of Pakistan over, along with the prime minister, Manmohan Singh, Natwar Singh, the foreign minister, Deepak Kapoor, the COAS. And I was accused by Modi of consulting with them to take out a supari in Pakistan on him. I mean, this is mafia language. Is gangster language. And I would have imagined that the Congress leadership would have asked me, but they didn't. And I have been out, I've never been allowed until a few weeks ago for 10 years to be in the presence of the most effective Congress leader, Sonia Gandhi. Mm -hmm. So there have been consequences that were foreseen. There were many consequences that were unforeseen, but I've taken them all on my chin. And I wouldn't change a word, a line of my life, even if it means that I will not figure in the history of India, where I'd hope to play a role. 
Okay. Okay. And on that note, we'll end. Thank you so much for talking to me. For the listeners, go out and get uh, Memoirs of a Maverick by Mani Shankar Iyer. The first 50 years is the first part of a trilogy and it's really very readable and um, gives you an insight into the man uh, and into the politics of uh, the last so many decades. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm truly honored. Thank you. (laughs) Bye. To stay updated on this podcast, follow us at HD Smartcast on all the major social media platforms. To listen to more such podcasts, log on to www.hdsmartcast.com. Smartcast.com.